Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A radio star with the help of Cali Vegas. 949-445-1119. Call now. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. I'm Jessica Ettinger, CNBC. Stocks plunged on Wall Street today. Tech shares resumed their sell-off. The Dow fell 406 points. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ each dropped 2%. Tesla shares were in the green, up 3%, but Apple shares dropped 3%. September so far is living up to its stormy reputation for stocks. Another nearly 1 million people applied for unemployment benefits last week, 884,000. Thousand employment gains tapering off. Companies are still cutting jobs. City becomes the first major bank to install a woman as CEO. Jane Frazier takes over in February. Microsoft says Russia, China, and Iran have all launched cyber attacks on presidential campaigns in the past few weeks. One hack against a firm working with the Biden campaign used phishing emails to hack into private documents. Jessica Edinger, CNBC. California headline news. With so many wildfires burning in the state, it is creating big challenges for firefighters. We've had red flag conditions throughout the state of California. They've been for the long haul, a lot of work ahead of us, and we currently have 29 major complexes throughout the state of California. That's Jason Malorich with Cal Fire. San Francisco Mayor London Breed says businesses like hair and nail salons, along with gyms, will be allowed to open for indoor operations at a limited capacity starting Monday. Hotels, outdoor family entertainment centers, and outdoor movie theaters can also open Monday, but under specific rules for outdoor gatherings. Cal State University Chancellor Timothy White has announced the 23 schools in the Cal State system will continue with mostly virtual learning for the term that starts in January. Alex Stone has more. The Chancellor saying after consulting experts, they've decided to continue virtual learning next year and limited on-campus housing. He says the announcement is meant to give students and families time to plan. Commencement plans for next year are still being developed. Steve Clawson, California News. I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really help me fall asleep faster? Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Don't miss the final days of our biggest sale of the year, where all beds are on sale. Save $1,000 on our most popular smart bed and adjustable base. Ends Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Someone once said, life is what happens when you're busy making plans. So let's go there. Let's make some plans. 
Let's feel that feeling once again as you search and imagine that perfect getaway. Because when the time is right, when the heart says go, we'll be ready. So let's book a trip. Let's aim for the horizon and shoot for the moon. Let's go there. Book now and travel later at letsgothere.travel. This segment on KQLH is sponsored by Dave Rayleigh, who says, Save daily, vote Rayleigh. Save daily, vote Rayleigh. Hello, my name is Colonel David E. Rayleigh, candidate for the County Board of Education. Education was singularly the most important aspect of my success in the Air Force. Your vote is urgently needed to ensure that all children are afforded the same opportunity to succeed in their careers. Save daily, vote Rayleigh. Thanks for your consideration and have a Your voice, your vote. In our democracy, they matter and make our community and our country stronger. So make yours count. Get registered, learn the issues, know the candidates, and vote by or on November 3rd. Visit vote411.org for registration and election information. This message is furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. If you're 85 or younger, would you like peace of mind and comfort for your family? We're Final Expense Direct with an urgent message for you. The average funeral today costs over $8,000, but the most you'll get from government benefits is $255. How will your family pay the difference? We can help. Our senior plans start as low as just a dollar a day and pay up to $30,000 for a funeral and other final expenses. Peace of mind is easy. There's no medical exam. You'll have lifetime coverage, and your plan can't be canceled as long as you pay your premiums. Call now for free information about our senior plans. Answer a few simple questions and receive approval right on the phone. Plus, call right now and we'll give you a discount prescription card for free. Call 800-327-1660. That's 800-327-1660. Again, 800-327-1660. KCAA. Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10.50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant afternoon and good afternoon to everybody. Uh, this is Rob Starr, your host of the show. Uh, our other, like, distinguished other co-host, uh, Chris Davies, uh, was actually in eastern Utah on vacation, and I guess they had a snowstorm, and they canceled all the planned activities that he had, so he's on his way back. But that's okay. We uh, wish him a nice, safe drive back, and uh, uh, and I uh, was hoping everything was uh, fine for his trip, but I'll, we'll learn about it more next week. But uh, we're going to bring in uh, one of our favorite people, Ms. Chris Austin, who's the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, and she is the most important person and most knowledgeable person on water and what's happening in the state of California and also around the world as well. 
So, Chris, welcome to the show again. Hey, welcome, everybody. How you doing? We're doing fine, and uh, I hope you're safe from the fires out there in California. Oh, yeah, we're not doing too bad down here in Southern California. Our uh, air quality is pretty darn bad, but um, it's not nearly what they're having to deal with up in Northern California. So we have listeners up there. I hope you guys are all safe. It's, it's, uh, the pictures coming out of the Bay Area are just like, apocalyptic. <laughs> There's no other word for it. I mean, so dark during the day yesterday that the street lights did not turn off. So, you know. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching uh, Governor Newsom earlier today and and I guess because of the fires in the neighboring states as well, you know, they usually share uh help, uh, you know, firefighters and stuff, but right now it's very very difficult to get extra bodies to help them put out. And, and, and then I was watching a gentleman uh, this afternoon, I forget his first name, his last name is Schellenberg, Berger, and he's an environmentalist. And he was saying that, uh, you know, people are blaming the drought and other things uh, on, on, on these fires. And, he, and his comment and, and take on it, he's, he's the author of a book called Apocalypse, Apocalypse Never. And he was saying today that the, the reason that there's fires is not necessarily because of the drought or anything else, it's because they don't manage the forest well enough. They they don't uh, burn off what needs to be burnt off, and all this extra wood fuel, uh, you know, is available, and and that's kind of the reason why we're seeing more fires. Uh, that's the majority of the reason versus you know a drought situation. What do you think about oh, that? No, ab- absolutely, and, and that's correct. And and I you know I would like to point out that that's not uh, the environmentalist's fault. That's not the Democrats' fault. Um, that the policy of suppressing fires actually dates back to around the early 1900s when they had some kind of major fire in the Midwest that blew through numerous states and killed all kinds of people. And so after that happened, they said, you know what, we, we're going to have a policy of uh, suppressing fires. Uh, and and so they went about suppressing all fires. Um, you know, the the goal was to just kill it off. But the problem is that, or you know, the thing is that our Sierra Nevada forest, the pine forest, and a lot of other forests, you know, fire is kind of part of the natural ecosystem, and fires would naturally kind of go through. And the indigenous people, the Indians, the Native Americans who are here before us, understood the value of fire and the value of burning off the understory. But, you Mm -hmm. know, when uh, we came out and developed the West, you know, the loss of life was just not tolerable. So the idea was, you know, uh, suppress the fires. And so, you know... There's a whole push to get back to prescribed burning and other practices that kind of help burn out the understory. But there are, you know, literally millions of acres that are uh, really completely overgrown. Um, and it's going to take a lot. But again, uh, you know, this is, this is not a Democrat thing or an environmentalist thing. This is a policy that was enacted by who knows whoever it was that was in power in the early 1900s because they were responding to the loss of life. 
Um, You know, and unfortunately, it's turned into something much worse. And, you know, cleaning out the forest and kind of getting rid of this is a very expensive and labor-intensive process. But they are making steps forward, both in the state forest and in the federal forest. And actually, I do believe that uh, federal forested lands make up the majority of the forest here in California. Right. So, right. You know, so I just want to say, you know, when, when certain people might point at California, most of those areas, most of our forested acres are under federal control. So right. there you go. Well, I know I live in Orange County, you know, in the city of Anaheim Hills. Uh, there used to be uh, notices from the fire department that, that if, if you are by a hill or specific area, that you have to burn like 50 feet or 100 feet down uh, and, and, and do that every year, keep it maintained and such. And, and that's, that's really a great idea because, as you said, all this underbrush and stuff uh, can be torched and uh, by lightning or whatever. Somebody throws a cigarette or who knows what. Uh, and and uh, it's the devastating fires that happen. I mean, I when, when I lived there in Orange County, I was evacuated twice, <laughs> you know, for, for, for fires that started. And they were and they were huge, huge fires. You know, luckily, luckily, nobody got killed. I mean, there were, there were homes lost, lots of homes lost, but nobody nobody got uh, killed over it. But but it's dangerous. That 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 really needs to happen. But anyway, um, you know, I was reading your 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 information that you put out every single day and made notebook in. It's actually the first thing I do when I turn my my computer because it pops up automatically <laughs> that it's already arrived, which I really like. Um, and you talked about which I think our, our listeners might be interested because there's a lot of people that when I when I go out and talk to to uh, conferences and, and or or water agencies and things they understand it, but the public has all these questions about. Uh, you know, Department of Water Resources and all of this other stuff. So to me, you know, there's like four water major entities in California. And I thought maybe that would be a good way to start this off to, to inform our listeners what, what are they and what do they do and how do they do? they work together? Do they work separately? And so forth and so on. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, there's a media outlet that's been comparing these uh, water entities or different entities. They put out a series of articles, and this last one is the latest one. And they did a pretty good job of picking out the four water entities. Uh, other of their, um, uh, you know, earlier articles where they picked out different things, I could have debated that there were others that should have made that list. But this one is pretty good. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, entities in California that regulate uh, water. And, uh, and, I mean, it's actually numbers in the thousands when you get down to all the different local districts. And, and uh, you know, we love government so much here in California, we just create all these, you know, numerous, numerous entities. But there are four, about four at the top, I would say, kind of three, but, you know, we'll say four. Um, and they kind of rank them here in different ways. I would say probably the one that's most impactful to people are, is the State Water Resources Control Board because they're the regulatory agency in California, and they are responsible for implementing the Clean Water Act, the federal legislation 
uh, that was enacted in the 1970s, and also the state uh, version of that, which is called the Porter Cologne Act, uh, which is actually takes the federal regulations. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it's, it's a bit stricter than them. And the Porter Cologne Act uh, created the State Water Resources Control Board and the nine regional boards. And they they impl- they have to implement all the regulations uh, primarily with surface water. So if you are, have a discharge, you're an industrial facility or you're a wastewater treatment plant, and you are discharging water to a river or a stream, or some in some instance where it's going to flow into another water body, you have to get a permit, and you would get a permit from the state, from your regional water board. And the state water board deals with other things on a larger, uh, on a larger scale. They deal with the Delta, too, um, because the Delta has been deemed so important that uh, it's a state-level thing, not a regional thing. But most people, if you are working in your local area and you have, need to discharge to to a waterway or even a discharge to land if you're going to pool some type of uh, discharge from your facility in a pooling facility to dry it. There are standards that you must uh, take and permits you must get so that you don't uh, uh, contaminate groundwater. So that you know, that's the biggest one in terms of what affects people, you know, in their day-to-day life. Uh, Another one is the Department of Water Resources. And the Department of Water Resources is sort of like uh, the statewide level for uh, responding to all sorts of things like floods and droughts and and they also run the state water project, which is uh, which brings a lot of water down to Southern California. Um, and because they have the state water project and they impact the Delta ecosystem, they also have a strong science program and they restore habitats and uh, for facil- you know for endangered species. But in general. Uh, if you're a regular person, you're not really going to deal with the Department of Water Resources. Um, and the, uh, the third big one, I think, is the California Water Commission. And they sort of oversee, to a certain extent, the Department of Water Resources and the State Water Project. Um, they are the entity that when uh, California voted in Prop 1 back, I don't know, I can't remember, 2013, 2014, I can't remember when it was. Uh, But that had funds for water storage projects, meaning dams or groundwater storage projects. Um, And they were the uh, entity, the government entity that was in charge of dispersing those funds. 
And so they're still working on, you know, managing those projects and seeing that they come to fruition. Uh, but that's sort of their big thing. And they also oversee the state water project, and they're sort of the place where if you are a, a stakeholder in the Delta or, you know, in some way in, in largely invested in this in the water infrastructure, you would go to the California Water Commission and you could speak to them about your problem. Um, so that's kind of what they do. The fourth one is the California Water Quality Monitoring Council, which they highlighted, which is interesting. Um, this is just an effort to better coordinate multiple sources that are monitoring water quality in various ways throughout the state. And there are various different programs that do this, and they have um, they passed a law several years ago that said that they wanted to be better coordinated on this. And one of the outcomes of this is there is a series of portals available to State Water Board at uh, mywaterquality.com where you can actually check on the status of different types of water that's in your area. Like you want to know, you know, can I go swimming in that river or, you know, what's the quality at the beach or how is this estuary doing? They have all these various different portals that they have created where you can go in and it actually interprets the data for you so you can understand what's going on if you want to dig into it. So, you know, they're, they're, it's a very productive program, and they've got a lot of products out. They, the One of the biggest things that they have just implemented is a portal for harmful algal blooms, which is the big issue. So if you wanted to go to a lake, you could, or, you know, a particular reservoir or whatever, you can check and make sure that there's, they're not having problems with toxic algal blooms. So um, it's a very productive program that they have. Um, I wouldn't put it in the same category as the other three, but uh, but I would definitely say it's a very productive program and an appropriate use of our taxpayer dollars. They have a lot of products on, you know, my quali- mywaterquality.com that are really intended for the stakeholders and the regular people in the community to use. So, Hello? Oh, sorry, it was a mute here. Uh, Jets going, the side of jets going over here. They have F-35s flying today, and they were really loud. So sorry about that. Uh, uh, but uh, so on, on an org chart, they go all the way up to the governor's office, I would assume. Is that correct? Well, For yeah. Guys? I mean, the governor has the, you know, he's the head chief of the whole state operation. So, you know, they're all connected to the big guy in some way. So he's the, he's the chairman of the board, and so... I, I, I've noticed in some cases uh, over the years that one agency argues or is total, in total disarray or, or a disagreement with, it, with with one of the other ones, and that that happens on occasion. Is that when they do the head changes or or they try to work out the issues? 
Well, you know, I think that uh, actually the agencies are seeming to be working together a lot better than they used to be. Uh, yeah. You know, there there are stories of how, like, they used to attack each other. Um, I mean, and it was pretty brutal, and they had lawyers and scientists and and I mean, I think the animosity. Um, I'm talking back, you know, 2007, 2008. The animosity between the Department of Water Resources and the Department of Fish and Wildlife was, you know, pretty bad. I think it was. If I, you know, um, I don't. I I'm not entirely sure, you know, that I'm correct, but I kind of remember Lester Snow. Uh, that who was the director of Department of Water Resources just stepped down, and he was like, "You know, this is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have yeah. to deal with this." You know, because the the vitriol between those two departments was extreme. But I think that there's been a big emphasis in collaboration among uh, the government agencies. The state, especially the state agencies and the local agencies, in trying to get things done, that they've kind of come to understand that if you kind of get everybody in the room and you work together, you can come up with a solution that isn't going to end up in the courts and be litigated and not implemented for, you know, years and years or a decade or however. You can, you know, if the goal is to come to a solution, then the best thing you can do is collaborate. Yeah. I if think your one goal of the, is the, to block, then you argue, you litigate, you, you do all these yeah. other things, you know. Yeah. I, I think over the years, there's, there's been several people I, I could uh, commend who's done a good job. And presently, I think Wade Crowfoot is doing a great job. He's uh, known him for a long time, and he's a pretty straight shooter, pretty smart man, and he brings a lot of cohesiveness to all the, all the different stuff. Uh, Things. And speaking of cohesiveness, I, I, I also learned that uh, a lot of Western states are blasting Utah's plans, so they, they, they want to, Utah wants to tap some Colorado River water. Well, Utah, you know, when they divvied up the Colorado River many, you know, back in the 1920s, uh, Utah got a slice of the Colorado River, but they, I don't believe they have any infrastructure or if they do, it's not enough to take what they were given at that time. Now, we're talking 100 years ago. Now, they've been had this plan to uh, build a pipeline from Lake Powell that would go to St. George, Utah, and this plan has been in the works for a long time. But, you know, there's real questions as to whether there's any water left. I mean, we've come to understand that when they divided up the water in the 1920s, they weren't particularly smart about it. They didn't assign people a percentage of what the flow in the river was that year. They assigned actual amounts of water. Mm -hmm. So when the, (laughs) the river started flowing less, you know, it, there wasn't a, a way to reduce everybody's use. It was it just all reverted to the priority systems and these amounts. So, but Utah wants to build this pipeline, and they've been talking about it for a while. 
and the Bureau of Reclamation uh, has gone forward, and they have an environmental impact report out right now, and they're collecting comments. Um, but uh, the rest of the, you know, the rest of the Western states, they've come together. They have figured out a plan to manage the river and how they're going to cut back uh, in times of drought. They they have really worked on all of this, and, and now here comes Utah wanting to stick a new straw into it and shake up all of those negotiations one more time. So it's, you know, it's... <laughs> and and I, there's got to be real questions if you live in St. George, Utah, that you're going to be paying for a project that may not be able to deliver water if you know, the big news is that the Colorado River is drying up. There's not as much flow. They're trying to manage it all. So, you know, if you want to come in there with your straw, it's just, gonna, it's just going to make a mess of things. So, uh, you know. Absolutely. Well, Chris, uh, we appreciate you being on the show all the time. And in a couple of weeks, we'll make a special announcement that I have to tell you about, but I can't tell you now. I have to hold this locked over. Uh, oh, got yeah, <laughs> but we do appreciate it. And for our listeners, please go to mavensnotebook.com and get all this information about water every single morning. Uh, you can become a, a subscriber. You can become a sponsor. But it is the best place to get news up to date. I don't know how I don't know how you do it. But you cover so much all over the place, and uh, you're, you're amazing. It's, I guess you, you got a great big staff under you that uh, takes care of it. So we appreciate it. All right. Good evening, everyone. Good night. We'll talk to you next week. We're going to take a little break, a little break from our sponsors, and we'll be back our next guest. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, K292FQ Riverside, and K293CF Moreno Valley. Time to take a water break and talk some water. Irrigation. such a refreshing topic. As more and more markets face water restrictions, your customers may be hungry or, should I say, thirsty for water-saving products. For new installations, add options like drip irrigation, controllers that respond to weather data, pressure-regulating heads, or heads with check valves. They all provide easy ways to differentiate your bids and win more jobs. Or for an extra stream of revenue, offer existing customers upgrades like high-efficiency nozzles, rotary nozzles, or Wi-Fi-based controllers. Because when you help your customers save water, you make a world of difference for the Earth and your bottom line at the same time. We'll drink to that. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco-Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes, a better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSeries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now, with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Available in a medium-bodied, fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied, fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco solvent cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Show. I appreciate everybody uh, listening to tonight. And uh, since uh, I'm broadcasting from Arizona tonight, I thought it might be uh, a nice trend to uh, talk to somebody who works in the area of Arizona in the water industry. So we have a nice gentleman on our show. His name is uh, Jim Krupp, and he's the president of Aquatrek. And uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate that. Good. So one of the things uh, for our listeners here, and you know, since we're we're in a new state tonight, uh, I thought it might be interesting uh, to kind of go back with you and talk about how did you get into this business, into the water industry? What made you do it? It was an epiphany. I was, <laughs> I was a, uh, I was a landscape designer and contractor in the Valley uh, of Arizona, and uh, I I did this custom home, and the guy called me and said, "Listen." My water bill is about, well, it was about $900 a month. He was the highest residential uh, user of water in the city of Goodyear, Arizona. And so uh, when I designed it and installed it, I never gave any thought to how much water it would take. I went out to his home, and I looked, of course, at his controller. And the land maintenance company that was maintaining his property, had a, they didn't know how to, how to set it, so they had it coming on all three programs, all day. So I got into it. I started doing that. Uh, and then um, I noticed that he had the ability to get flood irrigation water. So I proposed uh, taking the flood irrigation water, building a basin for it, and then pumping it through the irrigation system to his large residential property. Uh, so we went ahead and we did that. And uh, I can remember it was in July of 2006. And while I was out there doing that work, that's when I had the epiphany, and that was that my future was water. Ah. And, you know, coming from the design side, you know, I'm sure you, you, you came out with some beautiful flora and horticulture things, and, and obviously the, the landscaper wanted to keep it nice and fresh and blooming, so he kept adding water to it. But, yep. you know, again, people don't think about the cost of water and what it's going to cost. I mean, they, they you know, they, most, land, most landscape contractors only care about their customers seeing nice curb appeal and that everything is blooming and everything is green and, and, and that's the situation. Now, you're, you're pretty rare 
uh, in the United States as far as being a certified water manager. I think you're one of 95 in, in, in the country. Is that correct? Yes, that is. So when I got this epiphany, I, I went home and I walked in the door and I said to my wife, I just, I just had an epiphany. And she goes, now what? And I go, I go, I think my future is water. So immediately I started looking up where I could go to school uh, to learn about water, water conservation, irrigation water. And uh, of course, you know, I had taken some uh, Irrigation Association classes some of the classes that were offered by the Arizona Department of Water Resources. And I began my education moving in that direction to become an expert in irrigation water. And uh, so in Arizona, I'm just one of a few that have that designation. Oh, that's good. Um, so from there, you started Aquatrack. Yeah, Aquatrack. So uh, I went from a landscape designer contractor to being really a consultant. What happened, Rob, was when I first came up with the idea and I got all this training and I got a very good understanding of how much water landscapes actually require. Once I understood how much water turf requires, trees and different species and how much water, they, I was able to put together a water budget based on the landscaping. So I could look at a landscaping and I could tell you, uh, depending on how many area, um, square feet of turf or acres of turf, uh, the uh, plant uh, palette that was there, I could give you in pretty good terms how much water that landscape needed. So my first focus was, how do you budget for water? And, and once I was able to come up with a budget of what uh, a landscape actually needs, then I could look at what was actually being given to it, and I knew where, you know, I, I kind of set the bar on where I should be, and then I would look at how much it was getting, and then the goal was to get it down to, you know, where it should be. So so the focus has always been on, cre in the beginning, has always been on creating a budget, whether I'm doing a university or a golf course or a small HOA or a resident's home, the first thing I do is come up with a budget for how much water is needed. Right. And do you go through a site audit with them initially as well? To yeah. See if so they have broken pipes or, or, you know, clogged nozzles and all of those things, or, or the controller is not even set up correctly. Yeah, well, what we do in when we, generally when someone hires us, initially we go in and we do a very comprehensive audit. I'm not talking about catch can tests, even though catch can tests are part of the audit. Our audit is very comprehensive, and it begins with formulating the budget. So we use uh, GIS measurements to actually measure the amount of turf, and then we measure the amount of non-turf areas, and we take a look at the density of the non-turf area and what the plant palette is. So when we do an audit, we first come up with a budget, a water budget for the property. Then the audit also covers, you know, checking everything you just said, we check the water meters. We check the size of the water meters. We find a lot of times water meters are oversized for the landscaping, and they can be downsized and save our client a lot of money. On one property, we saved our client uh, over $6,000 a month by just downsizing uh, some of their water meters. Uh, and then we do mapping in the audit. We map all the irrigation stations. So we do a comprehensive 
from the control, actually from the water meter to the backflow to the controller, all the way out to the sprinkler head. And it's, it's a, it's, it's, we almost write the Bible on the irrigation system for the property. But by doing so, we can tell our clients exactly where improvements need to be made, what improvements need to be made, and what the rate of return on investment they're going to have by making those improvements. Yeah. Now, a lot of people think, you know, with all these fancy technologies, you know, have EP controllers and, you know, pressure regulated this and that and, and so forth, that they're going to save tons of money in the summertime. But actually, they really save more in the wintertime and the cold yeah. days. But, yeah. but what have you seen as, as you're, you know, since you, have, you do golf courses, HOAs, universities, the corporate campuses and such, what do you see as the most frequent problem that you run into, aside from obviously they're using a lot of water, but what, what do you see as the cause of those things? Well, let's take the programming and set that to the side for a minute because okay. there's, all, you know, programming an irrigation system, uh, unless you've been trained and you know how to program and you know how to run a budget based on a program, uh, that's something that a lot of people, I don't, I don't want to go down in that area right now. I think the biggest thing that your listeners can take from our conversation is the efficiency of the system and improving the efficiency would be where I would start. And that, that all happens by doing inspections of the irrigation system. So if you want something to run efficient, you have to inspect it. We have a saying. Systems don't do what you expect. They do what you inspect. So we train irrigation technicians. We, we, we of course, work with large landscape companies. We work with uh, in-house uh, maintenance companies. And we do constant training, free training, for landscape irrigation technicians where we show them how to go out, uh, how to do a, 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 an inspection, how to check a controller, how to troubleshoot a controller, how to do ohms readings on the valve, uh, how to go out and make adjustments, so that if we can raise the efficiency of the irrigation system, we can dial down the programming. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in, in, in a lot of these companies or businesses that you go into, are they – are, do they contact you because they're they're getting walloped in the in the price of water and, and what they're paying for it, or that they just want to start being smarter and get more into the sustainability range, or is it a mixture of both nowadays? I wish it was the sustainability, but it's the dollar. So okay. normally, what happens is they're they're paying a million dollars a year plus in water usage for irrigation, and you know. So we usually get called in because there's real concerns that the water costs, in some cases, the water costs have exceeded the maintenance costs of the property. Mm-hmm. So when they call us on the phone, the first thing they, they call us in for is to say, hey, our water costs on a, on, a, on a property in Arizona, the water, the annual water cost was $1.2 million. The, the board of directors that ran that property knew that that water cost was high, but so they put together a water committee, and when the water committee got together, I mean, they thought, well, should we take out the turf? What should we do? They didn't know where to go. So what one of the, one of the committee members did was started to do a search 
to find somebody who was a water consultant who could come in and help them. And that's how they found me. So when I went in there and they showed me what the amount of water they were using, the first thing I did was do a budget for the property. And I said to them, you're using, you know, 150 million gallons a year. You should be using 90. So, So what happened was the water committee decided, okay, you know, we need to step back and have someone do a comprehensive audit on our system and tell us what's going on. And, and, and the landscaper that was maintaining the property really wasn't doing anything wrong. They were just trying to keep together a 22-year-old system with duct tape and wire rod. And so the system, I mean, honestly, when, they, when, when it rained, I mean, they had 100 and some controllers out there. It would take them all day to run around and try to turn them off because they didn't work from the master uh, computer, from the no. central computer. So, so what we find a lot of times is we have very outdated systems using software that's 30 years old. And uh, so the first thing we do is we go in and we look at how much water should they be using. And then we propose doing an audit. And, and usually what happens is we take over management of the water while we're doing the audit. And by doing so, while we're on site, we're able to save enough money to pay for the audit that that's ongoing right there. So, yeah. So what we have found is, it's like if we we'll, we go into properties um, on, on another property in Arizona, a large property in Scottsdale, um, they were getting ready to upgrade their system to a new system. And, uh, in fact, we were asked to come in and do the technical services and install the new equipment. Unfortunately, the new equipment um, was still 30-year-old technology. And we just basically said to them, sorry, we can't do this because there's so many better technologies out there right now that we believe that by going in this direction, you're going in the wrong direction. It's going to cost you a million dollars to do what you're doing. And if you listen to us, it'll only cost you about a quarter of that. And right. and so we were able to save them $740,000, not on water, Rob, just on the installation of a new system rather than doing what they were planning to do. Yeah, you know, that's, you know, people people have to understand all of that. I mean, I've seen contractors come in and, you know, when they write their uh, uh, maintenance contracts out, and most of the HOA people that I've known in the industry, uh, you know, they manage the HOAs, but they're not irrigation or landscaping specialists. And I'm not saying all companies do this, but some some companies can come in and say, hey, we'll repair X amount of valves for you uh, as part of the contract. But then sometimes they come in and say, well, your whole valve is bad. And really, it's only a $3, you know, little diaphragm that goes in there. Sometimes right. that could be the problem. So, so it's scary for, for a lot of people. Now, around the country, I know, I know, you know you're familiar with this and, uh, and, and such. There's lots of water agencies that provide rebates for using smart irrigation products and things. Now, I don't know, since I'm, I'm new to the area here, uh, is, it, is it throughout Arizona or only selected areas are into that right now? Well, the EPA um, Water Sense program that provided rebate was not funded by the federal government. 
<clears throat> I was out there this year uh, with the Irrigation Association speaking to Congress, trying to get them to fund the EPA um, rebate program that would pay for that. So in Arizona, you only have certain cities who are funding the rebates themselves. For instance, the city of Scottsdale provides a $400 rebate for an HOA uh, smart controller or $250 for a residential smart controller. Um, and that's, so not, the, that's, not, that's, that's not a lot of money. I mean, I know in, in California, Metropolitan Water offers like $50 a, a station or each channel for the thing. So if you have a 24-station controller, it's 24 times $50 each. So $400, I, it, it helps. But, you know, I, I agree with you. I think they need to, to put some more dollars into the program. And I was just going to say, I don't mean to divest it from the, from the conversation, but, but I think farming uh, industry should be able to get rebates for smart controllers and smart uh, irrigation products as well. It's, they use a lot of water. And we need it. Otherwise, we don't get food. So Yeah, you're right. Unfortunately for farmers... Um, you know, farming is a uh, very budget-minded uh, industry so that in the agriculture business, you know, $5,000 is a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult for these farmers to invest in, in, in technologies that can really benefit their farms. And the state the Department of Water Resources should be providing incentives for farms to do this, or even for golf courses, for anybody that uses water. But what they do is they say to the cities, the municipalities, we're going to give you a credit because each municipality has to file a report with the city, I mean, excuse me, with the state water department on how they're managing the water and what conservation plan. And if they have rebate programs in, you know, they get points for that. So a lot of times cities are doing this because it provides them points in their uh, in their compliance with the state law regarding conservation. Uh, that's been the only thing that's been going on is is certain cities have been doing it. City of Mesa does it. Some other cities do it. Uh, but for farming, and, and in my opinion, farming is is should receive uh, the biggest incentive because uh, certainly farming uses a lot more water than uh, landscaping does in, in, in Arizona. Do you see a future of non-potable water uh, for new new homes where they'll pipe both drinking regular water and non-potable water for irrigation and other things? You see, I know some, some a lot of cities in California are going that way. Do you see that as, as maybe starting to be or, or is going to be a trend here in Arizona? Well, it, it should have been a long time ago when, in, in Florida, uh, and I'm familiar with Florida, I went out there to do some consulting out there, uh, some of the cities in Florida, when, when you build a home, you get uh, your potable water, and then you get affluent water for your landscaping, and then you get your sewer. So you pay an impact fee for a home in Florida to build it in many of these cities. It includes affluent water for your landscaping. So they're, they're much further ahead of the curve than Arizona or other states are. But in Arizona, it would be very difficult now to try to pipe affluent water into every residential neighborhood. 
oh, you can't, you'll be tearing up the streets and everything else. It's, it's impractical. It has to be for new developments. And and yeah. if there's a clear path, and if there has to be a clear path to do the piping to it. Otherwise, it's, uh, it won't be uh, worthwhile in dollars. I think the I think the affluent water and the better usage of the affluent water because it's so cost prohibitive to try to pipe it to be used for landscaping. I think the better usage of it, along with the surface water uh, that that we receive here in Arizona, is to recharge the aquifer. Um, yeah. When we had a higher allotment of water coming in every year uh, through CAP, the Central Arizona Project. We had, uh, you know, a lot of surface water being used for recharge. Now that the Arizona has had to cut down on its water that it receives from the Colorado River, that recharge water hasn't been going into the uh, storage areas to refill the aquifers. I feel the federal government needs to step in, and they need to step in on the 12 states that are really using a lot of aquifer water in the western states, and they need to come in and they need to do a complete basin sweep of the entire 12 states, and we need to know exactly how much water we have there and what, how many years of supply of water we have. Then what we need to do is we need to say, okay, this surface water that we have, let the federal government come in and dig these very expensive recharge wells, and let's start allocating the surface waters, not just from from uh, Lake Mead, but from Lake Pleasance and the lakes around here, and using some of that surface water to recharge the aquifers. My concern is, uh, as we lose surface water, we're tapping into, both for farming and for residential, we're tapping into the aquifers more and more. And and the sad thing is, is that the aquifers is not, that's not renewable water. That's not a renewable right. source. And, and I think that the state now this year is having to mandate a reduction of groundwater, and they're doing it because of the basin sweeps they did this year and last year. Because the state has to assure the federal government that we have a 100-year supply of water before the state can approve another development to go up, new homes to be built, new businesses to be built. So there has to be water available for that. I know, I know this personally because my mother was the former director of HUD in, in, in Arizona, and she had to approve every planned unit development. It was because of her and her demand to know that there was enough water uh, to supply these homes that they wanted to build, and this goes back to the 80s, that the state passed the law that, that set up the Arizona Department of Water Resources because she said to them, unless you can prove, I will not allow another building to go up in Arizona. And so state had to pass a law and put together uh, a regulation regarding surface water and, and provide documentation to my mother and the Department of HUD showing that they had enough water to sustain the growth of what was going to happen to Phoenix. Yeah. I was, you have a smart mom. <laughs> oh, I'm telling tell you, you the real estate people hated her. The developers hated her. But it was because of her 
at the Arizona Department of Water Resources and the uh, and the uh, uh, legislation took place in the legislature in, in Arizona uh, to regulate the usage of water and to make sure that we had enough water before we continue building out here. As you know, Arizona, it's grown by leaps and bounds. I mean, from 1979 when I first got here till now, you can't recognize the place, Rob. No. I, I just read that 500 people come here a day to transition here. Uh, it's coming in every single day from other states, so it's booming. But putting putting your, your design hat on, back on okay. for, for a moment. So, you know, 20 years ago, they threw all kinds, of, I'm not saying you or anybody else, but I mean, but people put all kinds of stuff in their, in their property. Today, are people who design more in tune to what needs to be put in or what should be put in to make make it more uh, possible to reduce water usage and things? And are a lot of the cities and water agencies helping to write legislation to make those things happen, like where to put the, the spray heads? Should they be you know right at the edge of the property by the cement and the grass, or should they be 12 inches in or 18 inches in? Do those things exist that have changed dramatically in the last, say, 15, 20 years? It, it's changed dramatically on the commercial side because of, you know, you have the LED program where you're trying to get a standard for landscaping and for the building. And, and so they're using smart controllers and precision nozzles and all of that, but in the backyards of people home of people's homes, it, I mean, you're still seeing they're still growing papayas and everything else in the backyard. In the front yeah. yards, like in the city of Scottsdale, you're not allowed to have turf in your front yard in the city of Scottsdale anymore. If if you already have it, you can keep it, but no new homes can have turf grass or even a fountain in the front yard in the city of Scottsdale. So the city has has dialed it in, city of Scottsdale, and I applaud this, applaud them for this, to try to, you know, let try to legislate in the city uh, the usage of irrigation water. The reason why was the city of Scottsdale, a home in the, the average home in the city of Scottsdale used more water than any home in the state of Arizona. In fact, they use, you live in, in the Verado Buckeye area, and the city of Scottsdale over there, they use three times the amount of an average home in your area. Wow. So that's why the city passed legislation that said, okay, city council got together and said, okay, here's the way it's going to be. No turf in the front yard, and we're going to put together a plant pallet, and this is what we're going to do, and everybody's going to have desert native plants in their front yard bar none. And it has, it has helped. Let me tell you how much it's helped. The city of Scottsdale has grown exponentially over the last 10 years, but their water usage has gone down. That's impressive. Now, let me tell you something else. I don't know if you remember, but there were a long time ago, there was the, the Energy Act was passed, and that's when we started getting low-flush toilets. Do you remember that? Yep. And, and, and all the appliances in your home were low-water-use appliances, and all of that took place. When that happened, because the faucets were changed and the toilets were changed, even though the population of the United States grew, the actual water usage went down. 
The only way that Arizona could grow to where it's grown to today was because of that legislation, because now all the toilets and all the sinks and all the appliances in your house, you know, <clears throat> have a, uh, are set up to use very little water. Had they not done that, the federal government would not have allowed the amount of growth that we've seen in Arizona. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, I can speak in California's size. You know, we have almost 90% of the rainwater that falls in Southern California goes to the ocean. Yeah. We need places to store it and such as that. I think that's important. Um, so just, just for the record here and just for our listeners, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they contact you for your services or your advice or training or any of that? Well, uh, for... Um uh, for anybody, the best thing to do is to call us. Uh, the number is 623-594-8689. Uh, do you have a, a website? Yeah. Go to take a look. Yeah, it is aqua, A-Q-U-A, track, T-R-A-C, system, dot com. Great. And, uh, you know, I appreciate I, I love talking with you about what's happening here in Arizona and for our listeners who in Arizona, I think it's an important factor. Uh, I wish there were more people like you who are taking this very seriously. I know there's lots of people around, but uh, I, I've met you before and, and uh, I'm confident that you, what you do is, is excellent. You're going to help a lot of uh, a lot of uh, places, golf courses, HOAs, campuses, and even private homes. So we, uh, I, I, my hat's off to you and I hope we have more people. I'm glad you had an epiphany that day. And I hope your wife is happy you had the epiphany that day. So, we're up against our NBC News Hour, and uh, we do appreciate you on the show. We'd like to have you back in the future. Come on, maybe talk about the projects that you're working on, how they're coming out, and uh, you know what, what you're seeing in the industry, and, uh, and so forth. So, uh, again, Jim, thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. You're welcome, Rob. Take care. Right. And everybody, uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, Chris Davies will be back from uh, from Utah. And the one thing that we supposed to say every single week is keep your planet blue. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. I'm Tim McGuire. President Trump tells a crowd at a political rally in Michigan that Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward's